Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapters 3 through 5, Lord willing, tonight. Chapter 3, as we um, dive into probably the most prophetic book in the Bible that deals with Jesus himself. But as we look at these chapters here, especially the first, those, say, 25 or so, it's going to deal with impending judgment that's coming primarily upon Israel, Jerusalem in particular. But then it's going to branch out and go into the judgment of the surrounding nations. So the prophecies before us in this picture in Isaiah's day uh, have been already literally fulfilled. However, it does not exhaust the details that foretell the coming judgment. Well, let's just put it this way. Somebody was talking to me after the first or second service on Sunday. We were discussing uh, the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. And the question was, before, during, or after, I mean, where does it, where does it happen? I said, I don't know. I do know that it has to happen very quickly, either right before, during, or right after, because the cleanup in Ezekiel 39 is going to take seven years. So we need seven years for the book of Revelation to fulfill the day of the Lord, called the time of Jacob's trouble, or the great indignation, or Daniel's 70th week, a lot of different names for it, that we talked about on Sunday. But... The stage, like we mentioned on Sunday, that was last week's message from chapter 2, verse 12, the day of the Lord. And so what it foresees is local fulfillment with a double prophecy that how conditions are going to exist where God will eventually, um, his patience will have finally come to an end and he will allow judgment to come in. And when I mean that judgment, I'm talking about the Great Tribulation period that we will have in view in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 3, basically, is going to get sidetracked. Um, And boy, am I going to be politically incorrect tonight. Because it's going to be primarily, from verses 12 to 26, it's going to deal with um, women in the last days. Obviously, ones that um, uh, are not born again. Uh, their lifestyle, their attitude, um, it's taboo, I think, uh, in, in some politically correct circles, uh, to talk in a negative way against the feminist movement and, and um, the impact that it's had on our generation, at least the generation I grew up in. But the scriptures deal with it as one of the shortcomings uh, and failure of male leadership during the time of Israel, and that's going to be a big part of chapter 3. And it's going to tie right into the first couple verses, very interesting verses, in chapter 4, where it talks about, in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and, and say, we'll eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Very interesting verse. And we'll, um, we'll dive into that and try to be as precise and honest to the scriptures without being afraid to be or offend um, those that see um, it politically uncorrect. And we're just where the balance is there and what the scriptures teach in in these areas. So let's dive in. Um, Chapter 3 is a continuation 
of um, a quick review of one is the Lord's, um, uh, you know, he's frustrated, um, he's heartbroken, uh, he's beside himself, he doesn't want them to pray, he doesn't want them to seek him. He, he says, I hate your new moons and your festivals, they trouble me, I'm weary of, of bearing them. So here's the creator of the universe, his own creation, he's bemoaning the fact that they have no heart for him. He says, you do all these outward things, but your heart so far away from me, missing the forest for the trees. And then, as we study Isaiah, what you don't want to miss is with the judgment that he is pointing out in the chapters, it's interlaced with the promise of the millennium, and that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where it talks about the day when righteousness is going to be established. The Lord will rule 1,000 years with a rod of iron. Righteousness will be enforced. Just the opposite. This famous verse that's been quoted a lot lately, we'll, we'll get to tonight, Hosea 5, 2, where uh, they call evil good and good evil. Well, that comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2. So we're actually going to be hitting on that scripture tonight. And that's the society that we live in today. They call evil good and good evil evil, so we're living in those times. It's interesting, when, when Jesus was talking to the church of um, the seven churches in Revelation, um, all five of them, he said, this I have against you, and then he'd name it. Uh, their perception of themselves and the Lord's perception of them were completely different. They thought things were fine. You say that I'm rich, to Laodicea, but he says, you don't realize you're, you're poor, blind, and miserable. And um, uh, he, he accuses them of um, being lukewarm. So their perception was one thing, but the Lord's perception was something completely different. Now having said that, after he brings a correction, um, let's use the church of Ephesus, for example. I have this against you, because you've left your first love. And so he says, make it right. Repent, remember, and return. Make things right. Get back to your first love. And then he doesn't leave them hanging so that they feel guilty and give themselves the ability to allow the devil to beat up on them. No. He switches gears completely. And I think this is really important with people that have the gift of exhortation or are involved in ministry where from time to time you have to make correction. Uh, the example that I see with the Lord is he makes a correction, but then he commends them. He doesn't leave them um, feeling condemned. He just asks them to make it right. He says, but, but this you have. He says that you, you hate the, the, the doctrine of, of uh, the Nicolaitans, which was the doctrine of establishing the, basically the priesthood or authority over people. What you got going for you is you don't lord it over people. You don't say, look, I'm in charge here, so buck up. And, um, and so I see that as we get into the book of Isaiah. Does he have issues? Oh, yeah. And he lays them out, and he pulls no punches. But then at the same time, he weaves in, the Holy Spirit weaves in, um, light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I, I have, uh, for the near future, it doesn't look very, I don't, I'm not looking for revival. I'm looking for 
abandonment and apostasy that the Bible clearly talks about. Yes, there will be a remnant. Yes, will the Church of Philadelphia is clearly in view, and the Lord commends them. But overall, Christian Christianity as a whole will will see a great departure and uh, more and more of a falling away. As Jesus says, the days will wax worse and worse. The love of many will grow cold. And so he tells us things ahead of time, so it sort of keeps up, gives us an attitude of, uh, of being prepared on what not to do. So as we dive into chapter 3, we'll work our way down to verse 11, and he, then he switches gears and talks primarily about the women right before um, uh, the millennial kingdom comes in. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stocks in the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable men, the counselors and the skillful artesian and the expert enchanters. I will give children to their princes. Now here's where we're going to see a switch. In the first three verses, he's talking about a man's man. He's talking about, in our military, the generals. And he's saying, I'm going to take that away, and I'm going to put people in leadership positions that were never called or gifted to be leaders. And that's happening right now. Uh, 200 of our generals have either resigned or have been shown the back door because they know how to win a war, and they've said so, and we're, we're simply not doing it. We're not, we're not if we're at war, uh, say with ISIS, we have the capacity, we have the military might, and we had, past tense, men who could pull it off. So one of the things that happened in Israel's time is he says, I'm taking those guys away from you. And in verse four, he says, I'm gonna give you children instead. In other words, guys uh, that uh, just don't have it. Um, Babes will rule over them. In other words, people who are there because um, uh, they're paid to do so, or they're yes men who will do what, um, uh, in our case, what our president is telling them to do. Um, I have, I'm not afraid of all to talk about the failures of our president from the pulpit. He is not fulfilling the role of commander-in-chief um, in, a, in a war that could easily be taken care of and easily won if he just, cut, if he just put the right people in positions of leadership. But I think, you know, you sort of get what you um, deserve. And what we've done, and we'll close the study with this tonight, um, the Lord is going to call us to count, that's just one example, for the death of 50 million babies. We're going to be held to count for that. It's an abomination. Uh, we've legalized in the law of the land something that God calls an abomination, calling good evil and evil good. And we wonder, when is the Lord going to bring justice to all this? Well, here's the stepping stones that I see. Taking away the men who are leaders and putting in their place children, babes, will rule over them, 
In verse 12, we're going to find out women are going to get in the role. Uh, every, every one and another and every one by his neighbor, the child will be insolent towards the elder. In other words, lack of respect. That's what Paul told Timothy. In the last days, that's what's going to happen. No respect for authority. Disobedience, children. Uh, let me make it practical. You're 14 years old, you get caught smoking cigarettes, and dad says you're grounded for two weeks. And, um, and he gives you a, a good smack on the bottom of the butt. And he says, okay, I'm calling social services, and we'll see what happens here. And basically, parents are scared of their kids in the times in which we live to implement um, disciplinary actions that, you know, one generation ago, we wouldn't think twice about it. I, we feared the fly swatter. It was hanging on the, on the refrigerator, and I knew where it was, and I knew when it was coming out. <laughs> and, uh, and if that didn't work, wait till your dad gets home. Always did, you know. It was, it, was, it was just one or the other. And the base towards the honorable. Lack of respect of authority. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler. We're told that a day's wages will buy a piece of bread in Revelation 6. We read it on Sunday. There will be famines. We went through the, the, the apocalypse of the four horsemen, the Antichrist coming out. And then we have peace being taken, war. What follows war but famine? What follows famine but death? And <laughs> again, I, I got my numbers mixed up. And we have, in the first four seals of the book of Revelation, now I know the right number, 1.8 billion people that will perish during that period of time. And um, uh, we're seeing the, the signs that are, are leading up to the day of the Lord. Um, verse 7, in that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house there's neither food nor, nor clothing. Uh, do not make me a ruler uh, of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen. Okay, again, let me remind you of the background. The ten northern tribes have already fallen to Assyria in the north under Sennacherib. And um, now Sennacherib eventually is going to be at um, Hezekiah's front door. We'll get there eventually in in Isaiah. Uh, But the reason... And the forewarnings that Isaiah is giving here is because, he, we're going to read it shortly, uh, you did just like your sister Israel did. Now the same indictment that the Lord had against the ten northern tribes, he's saying, your sister, you're doing the same things that they did. And therefore, I'm going to hold you accountable. And that day uh, you will protest, that, that won't be there, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. They provoke the eyes of his glory. Uh, The look on their countenance witness against them, and they declare their sins as Sodom. They do not not hide it. Uh, There used to be the phraseology of of, um, coming out of the closet in the homosexual community. Well, they're not... And that's it's, it's every other program on television these days that is promoted. And uh, Gay Pride Day is a, a public day at Disneyland down in, down in Florida. So they're parading it. And again, it's calling good evil and evil good. 
And, um, and the Lord says, you're, you're, you're not even hiding it like you once did in the closet. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. God won't be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap it. And we should never mistake the long-suffering of the Lord and the fact that he won't someday bring judgment. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. And as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Now, I don't know, is it 44 presidents, 45 that we've had? Um, Here, I'm going to, again, this is going to step on toes and be really politically incorrect because I want to take a biblical look at the position of women in leadership, primarily speaking in the church. I don't expect um, unsaved people to do anything other different than what unsaved people do. And um, so as we look at this, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter And the rest of the chapter is really a slant towards the arrogant of the ungodly woman from verse 12 to 26. We'll take a New Testament look at what the scriptures have to say about uh, womanhood and uh, what the scripture says in the New Testament as far as it pertains to biblical Christianity. O my people, those who lead you cause you err and destroy the way of the path. The Lord stands up to the, to the plead and stands to judge the people. And the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyards. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and, and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. On a business level, what we've seen happen in my generation, is the monopoly of corporate America um, pretty much doing away whatever it takes to, to climb above, and we've, we've seen the decline and loss of what we used to call mom-and-pop businesses, and it was pretty much the backbone of our country. Those days are pretty much gone. You don't find too many mom-and-pop things going on with the megastores that are out there today. And um, the idea here is they have no concern about driving another person out of business if it means that they're going to benefit by it. And I see that happening today in the corporate world. It doesn't matter as long as your, your rate of growth is 5 to 10%. What's it going to take? Just do it. Well, yeah, but if we do that, have you considered how it's going to affect these people in this family? I don't care, says upper management. I just want my 5 to 10% increase. That's the attitude that's prevailing in, in Judah's time here. No consideration, the plunder of the poor and uh, their houses, uh, because they don't care who gets stepped on as long as they are the ones that prosper. Now, beginning with verse 16, he's going to talk about the women in Zion. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes. Um, it's, it's a picture of a seductress. 
uh, very, very arrogant and proud in, in the way that she walks, walking and mincing as they go, making a, making a jingling with their feet. Um, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendulums, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume box, the charms, and the rings, the nose rings, uh, the festival apparel, and mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, the robes. I don't think he's missed anything there in, in most gals' closet, right? And so it shall be. Instead of that sweet smell, it'll be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a grinding of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and you mighty in the war. Now this verse here, verse 25, is going to be important when we get into chapter 4, verse 1. Men have to go to war, and uh, your mighty men are going to fall in war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, uh, being desolate, shall sit on the ground. So the setting here, yes, this happened in Judah, but again, a lot of this is what it's going to be like when the world enters this unimaginable period of time where there is no leadership and um, the ones that at one time were very, very haughty in their outward appearance. And the idea of seduction is clearly laid, I think, laid out here and their wantingness in their eyes and the way they walk. And, and um, I think their view of marriage would have been very s- small and what we have in view. With that, let's do a little sidetrack before we get into chapter 4. Let's go to First um, Timothy 2 and just talk about some of the biblical difference in, differences between guys and gals. And I'm not... I've got to be careful in my wording here, but what I'm about to say pertains to the church and people who are born again. I do not sp- expect unbelievers to get this or to believe it, and, um, and yet what the scriptures have, have to say concerning um, a man and a woman's relationship before the Lord and their role in particular, it's clearly established. And... Um, Let me preface what I'm about to say, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought freedom to womanhood more than any other factor in the entire world. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? It's true. Uh, Women were nothing more than uh, possessions. When Jesus came along, he says, there's neither now Jew or Greek, neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for they're all one in Christ Jesus. Having said that, as Christians, we're a unit. We're the body of Christ. And in any unit, let's use the military for instance, we have different areas of order that are clearly established. And, um, and in so doing, there is uh, a unity and a harmony that's established. 
take that order away and you don't have the unity and harmony that God intended. And there's reasons that the Lord gives for this order. And I'm only going to look at two in the New Testament. Um, Let's pick it up in chapter 2 of um, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. And we're talking about if in Judah's time it was the arrogance with their necks out and their um, adornment for enticement that was the issue. The Lord said, if that's an issue that's going to stumble a man, then don't go there. So we read in verse 9, in this manner also, let the women adore themselves in modest apparel, with a propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. And again, don't get me wrong here. I've been quoting J. Vernon McGee on this issue for years, and that is his, well, what do you think about women wearing makeup? And J. Vernon McGee says, you know, if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) And that's his take on makeup. So, yes, there's extremes on this. There are denominations that say if you're going to come to church here, can't cut your hair. You can't put on jeans or, or slacks. It's not a suggestion. They don't tell you that when you first start going there. It's something you learn when you become a part of, of the uh, denomination. And it's legalism. The, and that, we're going to get to that in chapter 11. And uh, the, the covering of the head and so on and so forth. Um, but we're just talking about common sense here in realizing that men and women are sexual creatures and that you can stumble a man by the way you dress outwardly. You can dress provocatively, and uh, it can stumble a guy. So Paul just says, stay away from it and teach it, Paul. Um, Verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Then he gets into the area of them actually in a leadership position. What was the problem in Isaiah's time? Well, the men who were called to be generals, um, the patents um, um, of, of, of the war, those type of generals that were called to fight wars. Um, he says, let the women learn in silence with all submission in the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. One of the reasons this happened when we were in Caesarea um, no, Capernaum. Um, it's an A-site. And we, we actually go into a synagogue that was built on the very synagogue that Jesus was in. It's one of the more memorable places. But one of the things that you have to take into view here is a culture. So if you would go to the synagogue, the men would be over here and the women would be over here. And so what I think we have in view here, where it says let them... Um, learn and not and be silent in submission. I do not promote a woman to teach to have authority over a man, but to be silent. Um, what was happening and what they didn't want to happen is in the middle of a service, if the gals are over here and the guys are over here, saying, "Honey, I didn't understand what he just said. Would you please tell me and explain it to me?" That's disruptive, and so 
those sort of issues he handle at home without disrupting the service. All things being done decently in order. Takes it a step farther though in verse 13. Why the, the authority issue? He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. All right, so what does that have to do with anything? Well, deception. Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here, in the church, we see the Lord's oversight, and it's applicable, and I need to preface this by saying when the man himself is under authority. Jesus, I know, is under authority. He says, I haven't come to do my will, but my Father's will. He says, I don't speak the things that I speak. I speak the things that my Father has told me to speak. Jesus was under that authority. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions that I've delivered them to you. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. It goes on to say, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were, sh- were shaven. Now, in Judaism in particular, if you would go to the Wailing Wall, you would have to put the kipper on your head. And it was a sign, and if you don't have one, they give you a paper one. And out of respect to Jewish customs, we go along with that. We don't have that custom in the church in America. And you'll see why when we get to verse 16. But it definitely is a, an Eastern custom. And um, uh, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but if she is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is in the image and the glory of God, but woman is in the glory of man. Now, when God created Adam, uh, he created him from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostril. But it wasn't the same with the woman. He caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he took a rib and from the rib he created the woman. And then it goes on to say, for man is not for the woman. He looked at Adam and Adam is checking everything out and all the animals have mates and um, he's noticing this and it says, yet there wasn't found anything compatible for a man. Man was not complete without woman. So what does the Lord do? He creates Eve, for man is not for the woman, but woman for man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? Again, the angels wonder. They're in awe of the plan of salvation. They want to look into this because how is it that the creator is going to humble himself for these people and die? 
They want to look into this whole idea of salvation. Nevertheless, a man is not independent of the woman, nor a woman independent of the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man is also through the woman, but all things are of God. Judge among yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, is it a dishonor to him? I'll come back to that verse in just a bit. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for her covering. Then he says, verse 16, he's laid this all out. He's, when it gets into the covering part of things, he says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, in other words, if you want to make a big deal out of this, we have no such custom, nor do, do the churches of God. In other words, there should be this natural understanding of God's order and um, showing it outwardly, here's ways you can do it. But if you want to make a rule out of it and say you have to wear a dress, you can't have makeup, um, you have to have long hair, now you've just violated verse 16. Now let me try to lighten it up a little bit with a personal story with me. When I got saved... It was an Assembly of God church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I was the only hippie in the entire church. And I had hair down to here. And um, when I came in, I was a sight for eyes that some people had never seen before in a church setting. And I literally had people come up to me and say, and they would read out loud to me this verse, does not nature itself teach you that a man that has long hair is a dishonor to him? Well, Pastor Pete Cushell could have been an all-American basketball player, but the Lord saved him. Not only was he a great athlete, but he was a very godly man and a very wise man. And um, when he found out that this was going around the church and they were laying into me because I had long hair, well, he laid into them in a very, very tactful way. It went something like this. You know the great thing about being a Christian and just loving Jesus is you can look like Brother Jones here in his three-piece suit and his tie and, and uh, neat as the day is long. And then you have Dwight sitting right next to them. And uh, they both love Jesus equally the same and they're one in Christ. Isn't it wonderful? Well, he, he put that and then he pointed out, he says, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, reading verse 16, we have no such custom. If you want to make a big deal out of it and uh, have long hair, my long hair had nothing to do with my love for Jesus, whether it's long. We've been, love Song even wrote a, a song about it. Long hair, short hair, coat, coats and ties, looking straight past the, the hair straight into the eyes. Chuck Gerard song. And it captured what Pastor Chuck so wisely saw that the Holy Spirit was doing a work amongst these unsaved radical hippies that had no clue what was going on and God was saving them. The big issue was they didn't wear shoes to church. (laughs) And the board had just put in new carpet. And they got upset with Chuck. They said, these hippies are coming in, they don't have any shoes on their feet. And uh, they had a board meeting to talk about it. And uh, Chuck made the call. He says, well, I guess we're just going to have to rip out the carpet. 
He says, but if, if, you, if you're coming down between them coming to church and the carpet being there, then the carpet's coming out. And it was that sort of heart and that sort of attitude that um, uh, he, he saw the genuineness of um, guys like Chuck Gerard and Love Song and their real love for Jesus, and they were, they were being an influence. Having said that, the Bible clearly teaches that there should not be women behind the pulpit with the authority to speak from the pulpit. I suffer not a woman to teach. And, and, and what's happened today is I'm going to list off and name names. Um, in America today, the churches, I was just at my Aunt Ruth's uh, funeral um, up north, and um, uh, I had to leave early because it was not only a woman pastor doing it, but she was a lesbian on top of it, and it was a little more than I could handle. And so we didn't stick around for the service. We stayed around, talked to family and friends. But um, those that have ordained because of peer pressure, because of the women's movement, we've had them, instead of the church influencing society, society has crept in and influenced part of the church for the simple reason that they refuse to stand upon the word of God, period. Now, having said that, the American Baptist Church, uh, the Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church, Jewish Reform and Conservative Movements, Presbyterian Church of America, United Church of Christ, Unitarian Universalist, United Methodist, Pentecostal Church of God, Assemblies of God, African Methodist, Episcopal, Disciples of Christ, and Christian Science all ordain um, women in the pulpit. And this is something that the scriptures um, clearly uh, forbid. Those who don't, um, Jewish Orthodox, Mormons don't. Missouri's Missouri Synod Lutheran, uh, the Orthodox Church in America, the Southern Baptist Convention, and Roman Catholicism have not uh, ordained women in the church. Having said that, you can say, Dwayne, how can you talk like that? We see Mary Danielson up here quite often giving prophecy updates. I have no problem with that at all. And with Priscilla and, Priscilla and Aquila, they were they pulled aside people and gave them, and they were in teaching positions. We have um, women in ministry here teaching. We have Donna Rathke, we have Ruth, we have others that are involved with teaching. But what you won't see from behind the pulpit is one of the gals up here. And it's not because um, I'm anti-feminist movement. I'm simply a Bible-believing pastor that understands what the Word of God says about this issue. Good time for an amen? It's that simple. It's not a Dwight issue. It's a what the Bible says issue, and we're simply going by what the scriptures teach. What happened in Israel, tying it back to where we left off, of all of chapter 3, is primarily um, women leaving their place, and instead of taking on the role of motherhood, they were taking on the role of seduction. And um, in verse 12, it says, the woman rule over you. My worst nightmare is the fact that our next president could be Hillary Clinton. And I'm not trying to be funny at all. 
I'm just, that, that to me um, is just one of the signs of our country. And I could say a lot about that. And some are saying, please wait, don't, don't, don't. Others are playing, saying, go for it, go for it, go for it. So I don't know which side of the fence you're on on that one. But um, uh, that could actually happen. Uh, and, and I'll just leave that with that. But as far as Mary getting up and doing prophecy updates, she does that with her husband's covering and with my covering and permission. All right, you ready for chapter four after all of that? <laughs> okay, let's go back to Isaiah. On that day, seven women will take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own food, wear our own apparel, and let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Interesting verse. Pondered it for a long time. Wondered about it. Did a little research on it today. Did some word studies on it. And um, interesting comment that McGee had on this particular issue is the war that will be pending right before the millennial kingdom begins. During the Vietnam War, there was a surplus of 80,000 women ratio to men because the men were away at war. Evidently, during the tribulation, there's going to be a shortage of food. Well, you can rule over us if you give us some food. I don't have any food, so I'm not, I don't want to be a ruler. Now we have women who are saying, okay, I don't want to be the way we used to be in chapter 3. It was a reproach to us. What we did was wrong. Now, can we just have your name? Can we live under your house? And it may be as simple, that's what J. Vernon McGee's take on this is, is simply a shortage of men because they're off at war and a surplus of women, seven to one ratio. Is he right? I don't know. What is the reproach? Well, they lived arrogantly with their heads stuck out at one time. But now that, that uh, haughtiness has turned to a broken humility and they're willing to um, have their reproach, that attitude, that haughtiness taken away from them. Verse two, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. You know how much theology is in this one verse? We've just gone from, from one verse of these women, women wanting to do anything to make it right. We'll buy our own food. We'll have our own clothes. Just let me be called by your last name so that we have integrity, that we have that covering that the Bible talks about. And, um, and yet in verse 2 here, this reference to the, to the branch There are 18 Hebrew words translated by our English word branch. All of them refer to the Lord Jesus. In this verse, the word branch means sprout. Later, we're going to be told that he is a branch out of dry ground. He is something green that has sprung up in the desert. So we've gone from the great tribulation period. In that day, we have the branch coming forth, It's going to be glorious. So we've gone from complete devastation to now something that's glorious. And for those, an interesting choice of words, who have escaped, well, what have they escaped from? 
Let's see if we can connect some dots here tonight. Go to chapter 16 of Isaiah. Let me just very quickly go through the chronology. Rapture of the church. We're told, as you see these things, we're told pray to be accounted worthy to escape. Okay, that happens first. We have seven years of this great tribulation period. Just in the first four seals, 1.8 billion people are killed. And so we have that as a background. Then Jesus in Matthew 24 said, when you see the abomination of desolation, remember he says, run and hide. Don't come into your house. Head for the hills. Isaiah 16 actually tells us where they go. And so in Isaiah 16, it says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah. Now Selah is Petra. Um, Tourist groups go there every single day. It's in what we call today Jordan. Uh, in the wilderness, and in Revelation 12, when Satan is cast out of heaven in the middle of the tribulation, it says he goes after the woman to destroy the woman. But the Lord intervenes, and the earth opens, or it might be some symbolism for divine protection, and protects the woman who is scattered not only in Petra, but in other places, but primarily Petra will be one of those places. To the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. Here they are in Jerusalem, but then all hell breaks out when the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. Well, they thought he was the Messiah. He made a deal with them, seven-year contract, but he breaks it. That's Daniel 9, verse 27. In the middle of the week, he breaks the covenant. And um, then Jesus says, when you see that happen, head for the hills. Well, here we're told where they go. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. This is the remnant. These are Jews that have escaped and stayed alive. We read in Isaiah, from those who escape. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, modern-day Jordan. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Spoiler is one of the many names of the Antichrist. Uh, For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Go back to chapter 4. And we read in verse 2, again, I said there's a lot of theology in this one verse because we've gone from great tribulation to a glorious place, fruit, and for those who have escaped. And what it means there is Jesus through, I think, Moses and Elijah give instructions that when that happens, don't go back into your house, and they escape. Isaiah fills in the blanks and tells us actually where they escape too. All right, verse three, it'll come to pass that he who is left in Zion and he who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create Above every dwelling place on Mount Zion and above her the assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining and the flaming of fire by night. For over all the glory there shall be this covering. 
And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat and a place of refuge for a shelter from storm and rain. So in chapter 4, only six verses long, we have, um, um, we have the Lord. There will be those of God's people, both Israel and Gentiles, during the Great Tribulation, who will survive that period. Uh, those who are martyred during that time, of course, will be resurrected at the end of that time. In Matthew, the Lord Jesus expressed it in a way that may seem strange, but he looked at the end of the tribulation when he says that he that endures to the end. He's talking about the Jewish people actually making it through this terrible period of time will be saved. That's what I believe is that reference to he who endures to the end. The end of what? Well, the end of the great tribulation. Those who have escaped. All right, let's see if we can... I would like to uh, be able to get through five um, and talk about switching gears. The first seven verses here is a beautiful, in reading about it today, um, I was told that it's the most beautiful song in the Bible because of the way it's written in Hebrew. The English doesn't quite catch um, the, the beauty of the song, but let's read it. It's the parable of the vineyard. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, he cleared out stones, he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in its midst, and he also made a wine press in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Does everybody have a picture here? We got a guy just planting the vineyard, but he only wants the best. He only wants the best soil. He only wants the best vines. He uh, protects it with stones. He's got a tower as a guard. He's done everything he could for this vineyard to produce. And when it brought forth grapes, they were wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take my way, I will take away its hedges, and it shall be burned. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but they shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that they will rain no more on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plants. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, there was weeping. We have here a clear reference that the vineyard, along with the fig trees, are idioms for Israel. And everything that he did, let me just talk to mom and dads who have prodigals right now. And in your heart, you as husband and wife, you get together and you say, honey, what else could we have done? We, 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 we taught them the ways of the Lord. Remember what we dedicated them at church and promised to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. We've done that. 
and they've gotten maybe to 17 or 18, and they had their first year at college, and it's all undone, or presumably it seems. And you say to yourself, what did we do wrong? Well, let me just encourage you. Here's the Heavenly Father himself, and he's begging, he's saying, okay, judge, what, did I, what more could I have done to bring forth good fruit, and it didn't? And the answer is simple, and that is free will, that you can bring them up, but there's a reason that the prodigal son is in the Bible. They have to come to themselves. They have to have their own relationship with Jesus, not just because mom and dad have one. So sometimes it's necessary for them to get a little taste of the world, to show you just what the world is really made of. And like the prodigal, they end up in some pig pen somewhere saying, gee, I wish I could go home. At least there I could eat. And they come to their senses. But do you think they would come to their senses unless they were brought up in the ways of the Lord? No. What if they were never told about the gospel? That God really loved them and really did have a plan for their life. What if that was never instilled in them? And then they hit bottom. I'll tell you what happens. When people have no hope and have nowhere else to turn or look, a lot of them check out, simply because they run out of hope. But the prodigal, he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to repent. I'm going to tell Dad, I'm sorry. I sinned against heaven and I sinned against you. Let me just work for you. I'm hungry. What Dad say? Kill the fatted calf. Get the rope. Get, get the cow. We're having a party. My, my boy who is dead, he's, he's come back. That's the heart of the Father. And so that's what's going on here. I'm not going to be able to get through all this, but I want, to, I want to be able to tie in the New Testament parable that was told with this song in mind. We'll close with it tonight, Matthew chapter 21. Let's make our way there. Picking it up in verse 33. The parable of the land owner has Isaiah chapter... Five in view. I always bite off more than I can chew. We're going to make three and five, and there's those of you out there going, yeah, you're right. We'll get through four, wait and see. <laughs> Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. Sound familiar? And he leased it to vine dressers, and then he went away into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresser that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, well, surely they will respect my son. Everybody that we're talking about so far, I'm talking about Ezekiel, we're talking about Jeremiah, we're talking about Isaiah, we're talking about the prophets that God had sent to his people. Why? To bring forth fruit. But he got wild grapes instead. Then at last he said to his own son, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, 
when the owner of the vineyard comes, what, do you, what will he do to the vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyards to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits, because that's what the Lord is looking for, the fruit of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stones which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and this is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Israel failed when the prophets were sent, John the Baptist being the very last one. Um, John the Baptist was the greatest man, Jesus said, that ever walked this planet. Now that is a pretty heavy duty statement. And when they asked him if he was the Messiah, he said no. Well, what about Elijah? We're waiting for him. No, I'm not Elijah either. Well, who are you then? I'm just a finger pointer. I'm, I'm, I'm sent to say, make straight the way of the Lord. And the day that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he saw the Holy Spirit come down. And that was the moment John was born for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's him. That was John's job. Did he do his job? Yeah. What happened after his job was done? They took his head off. Two two witnesses will come during the tribulation, Elijah and Moses. What happens when their testimony of 1,260 days comes to an end? They're killed. But three and a half days later, they're taken into heaven. Verse 44 has one of two choices that man has when it comes when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whoever falls on the stone, the stone is Jesus, will be broken. How true that is. When a person comes to Christ, they become broken. It's like the women in chapter three being broken and now they want their shame covered. Just give us a covering. And isn't that what we're asking for? When we come to the Lord, we fall on a stone and say, Lord, forgive me, a miserable, wretched sinner. And we get saved. And we become bearers of fruit. No, that's one possibility. What's the other one? But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Interesting to me that in Daniel chapter 2, when we see the last kingdom of man during the tribulation period, Daniel says, I saw a stone, not cut, without hands, strike the kingdoms of the world and ground them to powder, and in its place rose this mighty mountain. That's the millennium. That's the temple that we read about in chapter 2, the first four verses. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So I'm right on time, seven minutes after, so let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we're told that these things are written for our learning. And we see that you have a plan for your people. Yes, they're landed now, and you're dealing with them. But we find here tonight that there's going to be a remnant 
that's going to be saved that you're gonna supernaturally protect. We pray for them tonight. And for those, Lord, who have never surrendered to you, your word tells us that you're the only way, that there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Thank you that you give us a free will. Please give us the humility to fall on a stone and to be broken and just to come to that place of gratefulness and gratitude. But knowing on the other hand, Lord, if we harden our heart against you like the scribes and the Pharisees, that that same stone will someday come in judgment and grind as one stone does to powder. Thank you for your word that makes these things crystal clear for us. And Lord, please bless us as we make our way through the book of Isaiah and your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.